turnover is vanity, profit is sanity, and cash flow is reality. This is Chris Reynolds, and welcome to the Entrepreneur House podcast. The Entrepreneur House is a business accelerator for entrepreneurs creating events and retreats all over the world. Picture yourself with other high-level entrepreneurs in the northern mountains of Thailand, October 26, 2017. It will be full of masterminds, workshops, advisors, like-minded entrepreneurs, and of course, some fun adventure. If you're ready to take your business to the next level with other successful entrepreneurs, be sure to contact us ASAP at theentrepreneurhouse.com. And now, on to today's episode. Location independence is a lifestyle that more and more people are starting to enjoy. People can travel the world and make money at the same time. The typical location independent entrepreneur is referred to as a digital nomad and is usually in their 20s or early 30s. They are trying to mark off as many bucket list items and countries to visit as possible. But there is another group of location independent entrepreneurs that aren't so mainstream. They are traveling, working, and experiencing the world with their families and their children. On today's show, we chat with Michael Peterson, the founder of a seven-figure location independent business, My Media Trading Desk. He created and molded his business for the specific reason of becoming location independent and fulfilling his wife's dream of living in France for a year with her three young children. During this episode, we chat about how he made this happen, the things that had to change, the fears that his family had, and the incredible experience that their family made this into. Today, listeners, we have Michael Peterson on our show from Brisbane. How are you doing, Michael? I'm great, man. Thanks for having us on. Thanks for coming on the show, my man. So it's been a couple of years since we've chatted and been in contact, and we met at a conference, I guess, two years ago this summer. We're yeah, in, we're in a mastermind European together. summer. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> cool. And so you're in Brisbane now and doing some some great things. So I want to catch up and kind of figure out what you've been doing in the past couple of years. But let's start with you evolving into the entrepreneur that you are today. And Michael actually did something that was cool. You know, we're doing this run of podcasts for seven-figure location-independent entrepreneurs and most of the time we have the listeners on the show, Michael, that, you know, say, oh, yeah, I'm at seven figures and, and we just kind of trust that they are. But Mike, Michael showed he actually took a snapshot of his revenue and sent it to me on Facebook. Today. So, <laughs> <laughs> and you're actually the first one that's done that. So thanks. Really? <laughs> yeah. Oh, man, you're a trusting guy. Yeah. You know, like, oh. yeah. But I suppose that's the that's a little bit. It leads into the story a little bit. I've, I've got this, you know, there's this saying that goes around and, and it sticks with me a fair bit of saying, you know, um, was it uh, turnover is vanity, profit is sanity, and cash flow is reality. Wow. And um, when you have that, um, because I fell in this trap, like, we, we used to have a different billing model in my business where we only build for the commission element. So, therefore, it was, you know, 95% gross profit, but mm-hmm. um, it was less than a million bucks. So, um, we were more profitable even than we are today, but you know the turnover was much lower. So it, that was a, a bit of a hurdle for me to get over because there's a lot of groups, you know, EO and things like that. It's going, oh, I have a million dollar turnover, and it's like, yeah, but that's can be pretty naff if you're only keeping a dollar at the end of the year. But anyway, yeah, a bit of left field. But yeah, so background is, um, I mean, like customer service sales kind of guy. Always been passionate about sort of serving people, being a host, that sort of thing, and. Uh, Sort of got into sales um, in retail and then in a few other things and, and actually in recruitment and I suppose in my early 20s, um, strangely enough, I, I got, got involved in network marketing to be honest and yeah. was around the um, yeah around the Amway business and a company called Network 21 which was a sort of an education system that sits sort of alongside it and, um, and it, that sort of stuff was so far out of my comfort zone and so much not my 
introverted personality that um, I learn a lot. I learn a lot about myself, learn a lot about other people, um, and you know, travelled a bit around the world on their wallet for a few years. So that was quite nice. But um, yeah, went through that learning phase and. So from there, I, I suppose I like re- learning in the real world. I mean, I did uni straight out of school, did about seven and a half years at uni for um, over two different degrees, one of them with a full scholarship, and I didn't finish either of them because uh, I just fell out of love with them. They became not relevant to the path I was on, and I sort of just chucked them in. So that's a, a bit of my story is needing to be interested in something for a long period of time, otherwise... Um, you know, they, things fall by the wayside. Uh, can you relate to that? Yeah, for sure. Actually, I was in network marketing for a couple of years myself. Do you yeah. think? Do you think it was essential for you to learn? Did it help you help your business education being involved in network marketing? Big time. Yeah, big time. Because um, not necessarily running, you know, P and L balance sheet sort of stuff. And I'm not even fabulous at that today. But the business side of people. And it's not um, not the tacky side. I mean, the the thing with network marketing is the same as uh, digital advertising, podcast, whatever. Like, there's 50 different varieties of it, and there's thousands of different people. So it's the people that make it positive or negative, not the industry itself. And I was just lucky enough to be involved with some with some classy people who did things in a in a classy way. So they were more interested in the personal growth and goal setting and all that sort of fun stuff than they were about you know washing powder and vitamins. So. Um, yeah, it was um, essential for me to learn about goal setting and learn about actually the whole dream of moving to France for a year with a young family was we were sitting in a Network 21 seminar when we were 25 and the speaker was saying, hey, write down something that you know, you'd love to achieve in 10 years' time and it's just so big it scares you but if it came off, it would be amazing and all that sort of stuff and my brain doesn't work well with those things. I'm a very <laughs> literal, real-world guy. I just That just messes with my head but my girlfriend at the time now now wife just wrote down i want to live in france for a year in 2015 with my you know my family mm-hmm. and we weren't married yet we didn't have kids yet we were 25 and footloose and fancy free but that's what she wrote down and that's what we achieved in 2015 um and there's no way like no one in my family's done that before no one that i knew's done that before um it's very common for someone like yourself you probably know hundreds of people to do that sort of stuff but in my circle it was completely unheard of so yeah, I'd have to put that down to yeah. getting an MLM, getting an MLM <laughs> and learning about goal setting and stuff is, is the reason we went to France, I suppose. Yeah, see, not all bad things come from MLM, guys, like some really great things. <laughs> <laughs> it's, you know, it's like a golf club, you know. You give me a golf club, you're going to get a pretty bad result. You give Tiger Woods a golf club, you're going to get a pretty good result. So it's it's a s- yeah. similar sort of thing. It's just a weapon how you choose to use it, I suppose. But yeah, anyway, that, that's a fair part of our story That because that's how we learnt to sort of do what we do, think the way we think and, 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 um, and you know, we made some good money and travelled around the world a little bit with it too, which was kind of handy. But um, yeah, from there, I went into, um, you know, into recruitment for four years. I loved that. That was kind of selling people, so a different sort of sales, but um, I loved that. And then my wife was in a little advertising company and uh, eventually through some sad circumstances end up becoming a, a director and a minor shareholder of that business and I started to see behind the scenes of business and I like control and whatnot and and uh, I like to see I liked what I was starting to see over there where I didn't have much control even though I was in sales and I could make commissions she had a bit more control and um, eventually we plotted a path to to you know have full ownership of that company and that's the company that we we now own today we we bought out the business I you know the 
our business partner in that. And um, I've changed that uh, radically over the last sort of nearly eight or nine years into a pretty hefty um, digital advertising business than it is today. So, yeah, that's my sort of story so far. So, are you running it with your wife currently or is she separate? No, no, no. She, um, no, we're still together, not separated, but she, <laughs> you, 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 in, in nearly when you work together. But uh-huh. um, we weren't great at it. We... Um, I came in there after having worked for big retailers and big brands like your, our version of Walmart and that sort of stuff, and um, come into this little small business which she was a director of, and a, you know it was it was only small, but she was well known in the industry and very well liked and successful. And I came in there trying to change everything, and um, I still remember one day it was standing next to this little crappy little printer, and it wasn't working, and I'm like. What's wrong with this printer? Who do you, who fixes this printer when it's not working? And she just looked over me and said, "You idiot." So <laughs> I was like, yeah, "Okay, that's uh, welcome to small business and welcome to your wife's small business." But um, right. from there, we had uh, we had our, our son, and uh, then we had twins. Only sort of um, yeah, seven eight months after that. So we worked out she's much better at breastfeeding than I am. So she ended <laughs> up staying home with kids, and I ended up staying in the business. So yeah, we kind of switched roles. So there's a couple important questions I want to ask. And so Michael's going to talk about, he wrote an article about a year ago about the fears of becoming a uh, location independent and living in France with a family. And I want to talk about that. But first I want to ask you about the dynamic of working um, and building a business with a person that you're in a personal relationship with. (laughs) And so, for example, like my girlfriend and I, she has her own business and I have my own business, but but we travel together. And so we're helping each other out as best as we can. And that type of dynamic is always going to give you a whole new set of challenges that a lot of people don't go through like even even the type of people that are working from home and and have business together they overlap a bit but there's a whole new set of challenges so i'm curious like Mm. how you guys divided up the work and how you worked together when things were hard and how you kept separate uh, the separate part the business part of your life separate from the personal part of your life Kind of the dynamic there I'm curious to learn about. Matt, I'd love to give you a, a great story that you're going to have a successful relationship and business <laughs> working together with your girlfriend, but I'm probably not the guy to ask for that one. Okay. Um, my experience, I've worked together with Kate in our networking business for 10 years, so we knew how to work together reasonably well. Uh-huh. But in the small business, w- what I found when you work together and you're, and you're in a loving relationship as well too, and we also worked upstairs and lived downstairs, so there was kind of no escape really. Mm-hmm. But... Um, what happens is you typically, in a relationship, say the meanest thing to the person you love the most. It's just how – maybe it's just me, maybe it's other people. We, we, we kind of let our guard around down around the people we love the most. And in business, we often know what we should be doing. Uh, and then when you're sharing a role with someone or you're sharing responsibilities or you know overall driving of a business, what we found was – the blame game kicks in and it's like, well, I haven't done this. You should have done this. And if you'd done this, I would have done this. Mm-hmm. And things that you just – conversations you wouldn't have had with a, a, a business partner that you weren't in a relationship with. But, um, yeah, we found that it, uh, it's hard. It's really hard. Uh, and I would suggest that we would only succeeded in it if we had very, very distinct separation of duties. The downside for us is that Kate and I are both um, uh, sales-style people. So, we were mm-hmm. both going to – be in that part of the business and and it wasn't like one's the finance guy one's the sales guy but um 
um, yeah, I'm sorry, mate, I don't have a great story for you. We ended up working out that, yeah, let's just have babies and Kate can stay at home for nine years. Um, that, that, that was our solution, have babies. <laughs> cool. Do you, I'm sure you still talk business together. Like she gives advice when she feels like it's appropriate and, and yeah. helps you out with things. Yeah, she does. And the business, but the business has changed so much in the last sort of nine or 10 years since she's been around that she's respectful enough to know the industry, but not the day to day. And now we're so deep into digital, she was never exposed to any of that. So she understands and often laughs at the conversations I'm having on the phone because it's the same ones that she was having nine years ago. But um, yeah, she's. I suppose it's great because she can be a sounding board and understand the context of what I'm doing, doesn't really know or care too much about the finer detail, but can be supportive in the context. So that's that's pretty handy. But I've also found that, you know, when she asks me for advice, she's not actually asking for advice. She's just asking and talking. Like, but I'm really, <laughs> I haven't worked that one out yet. I, I kind of slap myself every once in a while just because someone asks a question doesn't mean I want an answer. But um, yeah, another human dynamic thing. Right. So you wrote an article a year ago talking about how you overcame the fear of working remotely. And I'd love to know what some of those major fears were for you and you guys yeah. and how you kind of came over those hurdles. Yeah, sure. Well, our business historically is, you know, we're selling advertising in the newspapers and magazines and things like that. So quite an institutional fixed business. It was a pretty old school business that had been around sort of for 35 years before we went overseas so um you had a way of doing things and typical thing is that you think that's the way it always should be done um but i had this pressing issue of my wife was wanting to move overseas and i wanted to be able to go with her so um yeah we just set things in place i was running a dual stream program with a, a business coach that i had about either selling the business or having it so highly systemized that i didn't have to be there um for a while you know, probably five years before we left, uh, you know, 18 months of that, I was only working one day a week. Uh, and then another two years of that, I was working sort of two days a week. So I had the test of part-time work, which was awesome. Um, but stepping away from it was still pretty scary. Also, because we're in sales and it was, re um, we were there representing other people's media. So, you know, we were paid to go out and knock on doors and to see people and do presentations and things like that. So, for us to decentralize and me go overseas was um, just didn't sound right at all. But um, yeah, it ended up working. Um, what ended up happening was um, the uh, we were still going to plan to go over December 2014. We were leaving for the 2015 year and it ended up that about four months before we uh, were to leave, I got a, an email saying that our, our biggest client at the time was leaving us and that would have been a 60% revenue drop in the business. So mm. uh, all the plans that I did have in place about staffing and you know, typical things was just started to fall over and I still remember standing in front of them in the bathroom one morning just – I haven't had it. That's probably the only time in my life I've really had it. Um, I've been blessed to have a sort of pretty fortunate run so far but just looking in the mirror going, I – don't know what, what to do. I don't know where we're going to go. I don't know how I'm going to make this happen. I've told everyone we're going to France. We've booked. We've paid for. We've done all this. We're renting out the house, and I just the money just doesn't stack up. But um, mm -hmm. uh, it ended up coming off. Uh, we we had to trim a few things, but it ended up coming off, and and it en ended up working very well. I mean, we ended up being overseas for 18 months. I didn't come back in that time. 
I worked five hours in the morning uh, in France, which was sort of 5 a.m. to 10 a.m. There was 1 p.m. to 6 p.m. back here in Australia. And um, we ended up picking up what is now pretty much our biggest customer uh, while I was over in France. And that was a little weird experience in itself. But um, learn a lot about myself while I was over there, a lot about business, a lot about relationships, a lot about what I should have been doing better and um, – yeah, it was a, a scary time beforehand, but it was so well worth it. And we actually found that many customers while we were over there, it became like they'd send me emails with Bonjour Michael as the start of the email. <laughs> so it became almost an identity. I mean, something to be known for, something that, you know, some many people found it quite a novelty and they, they sort of jumped on board with it. So that was cool too. That's really neat. When you were in that hard spot, like looking in the mirror and thinking, oh, what's going to happen? I don't know if I can make this happen. What are some of the steps that you took to kind of work through that process to get your family over to France? Yeah, sure. Well, um, I've got a pretty strong Christian faith, so there's a fair degree of prayer there. I'll give you that much for a head start, but pra- practically as well, too. It was just working out what was the sort of worst case scenario and what were some of the things we could do to. Um, um, uh, to make it happen if these people were going to pull the rug out from under us. But one of the things that did make it come off, is that there's an upside to it, is that I did renegotiate a deal with that customer who was um, who was going to leave us. Um, and, and what happened with that, and I think the only key reason that came off was I was just, we're very transparent, very open business and I'm a very sort of transparent guy and um, try to take the moral high ground where I can and and it was saying, okay, you're going to leave us but you're actually doing the wrong thing by your business. Um, sure, you know, we're not the right solution for you anymore, that's okay but you're going to do the wrong thing by your business and if that's the case, I suggest you directly employ these two employees of mine who know your account better than you do and it was just kind of setting them up with something that looked like it was just cutting our legs off completely for us but it was the right thing for them and it was the right thing for my staff too and that's what I kind of come back to when I think about those questions is what did I do right a I have no idea but b (laughs) one of the things one of the things might have been they came back and said look you know we've rethought our model we think we were a bit hasty Um, we want to put you back on um, a they did renegotiate the deal something shocking so the the commission percentage dropped dramatically but they also said we realize how passionate you are about our business and about doing the right thing by us the fact you were going to basically hand off your business to your staff um, uh, for our interest is uh, is a pretty good sign so I don't know that was that was one of the solutions there we copped a massive revenue drop there but we retained them to a small degree and that just showed me that um, you know, we are doing the right thing and we do do the right thing by people. So, you know, it all comes back in the end. How did you prepare the family and the kids to go abroad? What were some of the things you guys yeah. did beforehand? Yeah, well, um, French lessons did help. So, um, you know, we were doing, we were doing the Saturday uh, morning down at the, the local Alliance Francaise uh, office learning French down there. But then, I mean, my wife's just actually sent uh, – she wrote a book while overseas and she just sent it to the printer today. So, we – going to publish right at the moment which is exciting times for us it's called am i french yet so it was a story of <laughs> her going to find herself and you know and, and and you know one woman's journey blah 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 but in <laughs> that book she actually says you know we did 16 weeks or whatever it was of french lessons the kids and i she was already fluent but that's how like old were one the Saturday. kids at the time michael yeah um they would have been seven and six and six okay. so we've got they're now nine seven and seven so yeah um so 
they were young, but they were learning colours and numbers and things like that. And then, but what I mean is, when we immersed them in the French culture when we arrived, they had that was like six, twelve hours or sixteen hours worth of lessons that they'd had over sixteen weeks. They had more than that in two days at school. Mm-hmm. So it was great that we prepared them like that. But um, we actually got lucky in the ages as well. It wasn't hugely strategic, but they were young enough that you know they still believe mum and dad when they say hey, everything's going to be okay and everything <laughs> will be fabulous. But they were old enough that you know they're toilet trained and they were good, good kids and you know you could have conversations with them and all that sort of thing. So they were cognizant of what they were um, experiencing once they were there. But you know they just thought you know you get on a plane for an hour and then you're in another country and everything's fabulous. So it was a bit of naive bliss. It probably is how we got them there. Um, the extended family, yeah, some of the grandparents took it a bit harder, but <laughs> they they realised that it was an opportunity for them to plan their European adventures. So they used us as a base. It ended up and travelled the world themselves, which was kind of our idea as well too, is to be a bit of a catalyst for other people to have a bit of adventure too. So yeah, it worked all around for our family. So did the kids have any, I wouldn't say withdrawals, but uh, did they miss their friends or their grandparents or school yeah. back home? Yeah, they did. They did. But one thing, I mean, you, you don't have kids yet, but one thing you know with kids of that age is they'll miss a butterfly that landed on their finger and then <laughs> floated away. Like they'll, 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 they'll miss or be excited about 20 different things within a day. So it's just about managing that as a parent and, you know, obviously loving on them and making sure they're in the right environment and all that sort of thing. But they learnt to be very social and we sent our boy to school on his first day. I mean, they went to a school and we lived in like little villages really mm-hmm. and their first school had 27 kids in the whole school. Wow. So, you know, there was three other English speakers and then the rest were uh, local French but we sent him to school on the first day with a soccer ball which is like or football uh, uh-huh. which is the universal language. So, if you've got a football and you can kick it, no one cares what language you speak. It's, <laughs> you know, you're, you're in. So, that was them and the girls have just they love on anyone so you know a hug is irrelevant you know what language you speak so that's how they got in the door with 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 their friends and they were fine actually one one if i just jump back on one of the things that helped me over my fears of going from a business point of view i read this book by the guys who it's called remote it's by the guys who built 37 signals which is the company that owns high rise and Basecamp, the project management software yeah and that book You've heard of them? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. The book, the whole, they, they ran a team, I'll get the numbers wrong, but they ran a team that's all remote, and this was a book that's you know, six years old or something like that, but they ran a team that's all remote, you know, 20 to 50 staff or something like that, so a decent-sized business, and one of the sentences in there that just slapped me in the face big time, a paraphrase, he said, if, if you've got a problem with going remote with your team, it's because you're a terrible manager. Mm. Okay, that's interesting. And he said, you're managing, you're currently, if you're worried about it, you're managing by attendance. Oh, Johnny turned up today. He walks fast between the photocopier and the desk and (laughs) he's a nice guy and he tucks his shirt in and he speaks nice to customers and he stays a little bit, you know, minutes late at the end of the day. He's a good employee. He said, he's saying, that's that's how you must currently be managing if you're worried about taking it in remote because if you actually manage like a, a decent manager and decent business owner where you had KPIs, whether the person's sitting next to you or in the Philippines or they're in France, um, if you've got KPIs and people are meeting KPIs and you're happy with the KPIs, why do you care if they have their shirt untucked, if they've got the feet on the desk, if they're watching Netflix on the second screen? Like, why do you care about that sort of stuff? Mm-hmm. Um, and you wouldn't if you're managing the KPIs. And then I just realized 
A, I was a poor manager and B, I wasn't managing the KPIs. So um, if I could get that right, um, yeah, the business could move. Yeah, it's almost like you, if you're managing remotely and working with remote teams, you're managing based on internal aspects, like how they perform, how they're communicating to you, right? Whereas opposed, there's a lot of external aspects that you could be managing with a, a physical office. So I've never thought about that. That's a really good point. Yeah, it makes you, and when you say KPIs, there's a danger that it becomes tacky. Like, what did you do in this six minutes? What did you do in that six minutes? I don't mean that, and I've, I've never wanted to get to that level of... We're back. <laughs> <laughs> so, 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 for the listeners, my power just went out. I'm in Spain. <laughs> and uh, this is a perfect perfect time to just bring it up like this is a big fear that a lot of people have yeah you know what happens if i'm on an island in thailand and my power goes out you know what happens i'm in spain a western developed world where um, actually power hardly ever goes out and yeah and it just went out in the middle of the podcast so did you have some fears around that when you guys were were going to france yeah, for sure. And and credibility is always important for me for our business and also f- for me personally. And you know, if you if you've got the local, you know, AT&T or whatever it is cable plugged into the side of your building and you are, you know, you have a normal office, you you know, you you've got a normal phone system, that stuff doesn't tend to happen to you too often, but yeah. um I was worried about we we ran on Skype business when I was overseas, which was not a flash experience, but it was the right thing to do for the time, but um we now, you know, we've got dial pads so as a software, and um, and that means that my staff can phone out from our phone number from anywhere in the world, wherever they are. They ring out from a Brisbane phone number. But the reality is, I'm sitting here in Brisbane, and today, and I'm using and I'm using VoIP phone for my business today. And the power went out in my house this afternoon, ironically, just like oh, wow. it did for you in Spain. It did for us in Brisbane today. So. Sometimes we make things bigger than they are in our own head, yeah. and the reality is they're happening all around us. We just we just don't we're not cognizant of it. But yeah, that quality. I mean, when we travelled, I had it took eight weeks over the summer. We travelled around Europe um, when the kids were on school holidays, and I, I, it was in Nice and just in places in Airbnb that say they've got Wi-Fi. Mm-hmm. You actually need. I've learnt to clarify what sort of Wi-Fi it is. Get screenshots if it's important to me. It's got. I used to get screenshots of speedtest.net from them so they could prove that it was a certain speed before we'd book it, things like that, because um, I've been in plenty of places where they, they think they get good Wi-Fi, but they don't. And it, I just never want our business to look tacky, whether I'm working from Brisbane, yeah. France, um, anywhere else. It's, it's got to look, it, it's got to be professional. But technology is catching up with this these days, so it's a lot easier even now than it was you know, 18 months ago. It's also really smart to pick your countries wisely. So, for example, yeah. like like the, the developed worlds, your internet's obviously going to be so much better. But I go to Brazil quite a bit, and the internet mm-hmm. is tough in Brazil. Yeah, you know, things are going down quite often. We got an Airbnb. They said they had Wi-Fi. I made the mistake of not checking. I just assumed Wi-Fi good, decent, Means whatever. Wi-Fi, right? <laughs> And, and so when we got there, they were like, no, you just have five gigs you can use a month. And I was like, what? <laughs> I was, they're like, as long as you guys don't download any movies or anything. <laughs> and so that didn't work out too well. And one day... Yeah, one but day, I mean, I listened to one of your podcasts when you're in um, in Spain. So I mean, so uh, when you're in Brazil. So yeah. they obviously, yeah, it does work 
from time to time and you can be anywhere. It's Sometimes it's just a hiccup and you have to be human about it. It's true and very adaptable because, I mean, honestly, podcasting in Brazil is much more difficult than <laughs> podcasting in Spain or America or wherever. Sure. Because you okay, do have cool. those hiccups and, and challenges. We were in Brazil. I think it would take about in between one to four hours to upload a podcast. <laughs> <gasps> oh, gosh. I was there. And that goes your five gig limit too. <laughs> yeah. Yep, definitely. And so we had to find some other working situations. So yeah, pick your countries wisely is a very important thing. The Western world mm-hmm. is going to be easy, uh, easier on you and your family, especially if you're going with a family, as opposed to mm-hmm. taking a family to a place like Brazil. I wouldn't recommend uh, most people, especially if you're going to go long term, unless you have family connections there. It could be a bit right, different. Okay. Fair enough. Yeah. What uh, What was the name of the village, and how did you guys decide on this village? Yeah. Hey, cool. Listen to the clock in the background at your place. How you can awesome hear is that? The bells ringing, yeah. <laughs> Man, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah, you don't get that in Brisbane. Um, but but um, the village room we're in, um, so if you know Toulouse, uh, yeah. in, in France, you know Toulouse, you go about oh, probably about 45 minutes south of that. There's a city called Carcassonne, which is the big city with the medieval city and the wall around it and all that sort of stuff. And it's reasonably famous there. And about another half an hour. South of that, we're in two different villages there, one called Belgarde de Rosés. We are there for six months in this stupid big villa. It was awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was the tiny 27-kid school. And then we went on the road for eight weeks because we couldn't afford to rent a big villa over the summer. The prices just go crazy over the summer. So we, we were on the road. We stayed in all sorts of places. We were in Lake Como for two weeks. We were in Switzerland for a little while. We were in um, Milan for a little while, in Florence for a little while. That was all. That was... That was a juggle from a business point of view because I didn't take eight weeks off work, but it was um, it was well worth it. That was pretty cool. Uh, and then we had ten months down a little bit further south, village of three and a, three and a half thousand people, and there was about ninety seven kids in the in the school there. So it was a, it was pretty big for us. But we lived right in the middle of the Centreville, so we could walk everywhere. We walked to the movies, we walked to school, we walked everywhere. It was awesome. How are you juggling kids, business, and travel when you are doing that consistent travel for those eight weeks yeah yeah the eight weeks were a juggle so particularly over summer prices are pretty crazy we were you know we're in airbnbs things like that i'd be working from you know we had three weeks in sanary simer which is a, a seaside village um in front of a beautiful place we're in like this little caravan park resort thing and we're in a in a uh, what do you call it? Not a van, but in, in a little little hut there, a little house there. So that was hard because you know you're sharing space with everyone. And if I wanted, I've had to start work at 5 a.m. till 10 a.m. Um, you know, I got to get up at 5 a.m. and start working and try and be quiet for everyone else. Uh, and then when they wake up, they got to try and be quiet for me. So that was a, a juggle. But the the upside is by 10 a.m. there, it was 6 p.m. back where my customers were, and they were all going home. So from 10 a.m. every day, I was a tourist. Mm-hmm. And I'm a natural sort of workaholic. So if it was more like I was trying to turn my phone off, but there was still business being done and beeping through on my phone, I wouldn't have been present yeah. you know, for myself or for my family. But the fact that everyone had gone to bed anyway, um, I was just had the whole day to be a tourist. And I could even, I was, some of my customers said we were way more available because I could say, yeah, sure, I'll get that to you by tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And then in the afternoon in France, I'd knock something out while the kids were at school. And um, the customer would have it by the time they got to work the next morning. Did your wife have different fears about spending a year abroad? Um, probably not. She was, um, 
it was her dream. So, and she's a she's a, a dreamer personality. She's outgoing. She's creative. So, she created this whole experience in her mind, and she was taking her family along for the ride. So, probably not. I mean, we we had other fears while we were there. Like we were in France with when the Paris attacks happened. You know, we were oh, in France wow. with Charlie Hebdo, things like that. So, we were there. She was in when one of the coordinate one of the coordinator attacks went off. Um, they then found a guy in Toulouse with a rocket launcher, and she had spent a week in Toulouse, and she'd only just left three days beforehand. Um, and um, she was up there riding for a week, and so that all sounds flippant now. And you're like, I oh, had yeah, Toulouse, a big city, France, a big country, not that big a deal. But when you're in the thick of it, that's where we got a lot of fear then. Cool. And then the returning home process. So was it hard for you guys to leave France? Yeah, it was. Um, we ended up extending for 18 months after, you know, we were planning only for 12. Um, it was no surprise to anyone else, apparently, but it was kind of a surprise to us. We didn't plan to, but um, we spent the first six months just doing almost literally nothing. So then we worked out, hey, we should travel around Europe while we're here. So we jammed a heap in in the last six to 12 months. But um, living was hard. We made some good friends over there. The joys of technology means we can still keep in contact, which is nice. Um, coming back, like going from living in tracksuit pants or sweatpants or whatever you guys call them, and <laughs> and you know I grew my hair down past my shoulders. You know I had the typical man bun thing going and a big <laughs> beard and whatnot, and was just being a complete uh, social recluse. Um, so then I looked the same actually when I came back to Brisbane and we thought, you know, how are we going to live differently here and are we going to bring this, you know, are we going to buy a country property when we get back? What are we going to do to sort of maintain this peace that we've generated and the sort of connectedness that we generated as a family? Um, but um, we, you know, I still remember going to our first uh, Westfield shopping centre when we came back. It was like, it was just... A, a disgrace from a consumerism point of view when we've been used to living on not much and not needing much and anything like that. But then also just seeing so many people, so many neon lights and so many ads and so many stores. It was it was weird. It took of they call it reverse culture shock. It took a bit of getting used to. And I suppose you would probably experience that when you go back to the US from time to time. Without but, a um, doubt, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That reverse culture shock's pretty crazy. But um we slipped back into our in our past life, and I mean, Kate's written a, the, the book. I mean, I've read it so many times now, even before it's printed. But it's um, she's got a, some good points in there about just from the outside, we may still look the same. We're still busy. We're still you know working hard. We still got goals. We're still doing stuff. Um, you know, successful in inverted commas, whatever that means to people. Um, but it's the inside that's actually changed um, for us, uh, having you know travelled for eighteen months as a family and and seen different cultures and lived in different cultures it's um we can't go back to how we were on the inside so that's yeah that's probably the, the summation of how things change for us you guys think you'll ever do something like that again yeah i'd love to i mean i've got the irony now where i be, since coming back my staff don't want to have an office again <laughs> uh I've recruited a few more people internationally as well too so we are an international business now and i could work from anywhere and i do work interstate from time to time here but um, my wife's gone and got herself a job. So Kate's gone after eight or nine years of not working outside the home. She's now gone and got herself a full-time job. And the annoying thing is she really loves it. So I can't even talk <laughs> her out of it and convince her to move somewhere else. But um, I'm doing some um, – I do some work on, a, on the board of a charity that's got some operations in Cambodia and the Philippines. So I'm 
trying to formulate an excuse to go over there for a little while <laughs> in the coming couple of months. But um, yeah, it's it's good. I really enjoy having the business model, and that's you know you said okay, location independent. And my point was yeah, we have been and we still are. We're not. We don't have to be in Brisbane. We can be anywhere, and our client our clients are predominantly not in our state. So. I like that flexibility of still having that business model. Mm-hmm. I've just got to now motivate my family and uh, to go do this whole crazy trip all over again. But um, yeah, there's never a right time to do it, but uh, it's well worth it. And when you travel as well, you probably find this too, is that we took 10 years to get this thing up and running and, you know, three kids and sounded like a big hard slog. But we met people who did the, made the decision in two months and they had four kids. Yeah. So you're like... There's, it's the saying of um, one of my other sayings for myself is just there's always someone with a bigger boat like just when you think you're you know the top of the pile in digital advertising or you've got the best car or you've got you've got the most remote business or you know whatever that might be almost profitable business there's always someone with a bigger boat a bigger business a bigger whatever and so it's it kind of just keeps you humble a bit but yeah do you find that traveling just you have to be humble when you travel. You just meet so many different people. Oh yeah, I mean, without a doubt, like it's it, it'll humble you regardless. Business and travel, <laughs> both, right? Yeah, and, <laughs> and both it, a roller coaster. Yeah, and and if you're and if you're arrogant, you know, people are gonna be arrogant back, right? They're gonna be rude back. They're gonna be, you know, the the warmer human being the more warm of a human being that you can be when you travel the better experience that you're going to have and yeah, um, man. sometimes sometimes that, that that can be a challenge because like for example i'm challenged one of the i love barcelona right and i love spain yep but the service here the service industry is just not up <laughs> to par with like the customer's always right <laughs> so yeah so, well you've come from the american customer service yeah. where it's a profession as yeah. well too so i was just about to suggest to you that you need to go 3 hours north of where you're living now is where we lived and i was going to suggest to you this town that you should go and stay in and just holiday in the south of france in the country but if you can't stand uh, Spanish customer service, you're definitely not going to enjoy French customer service. <laughs> no, I've gotten, it's I've a, grown used to it, so, <laughs> but it took a while. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Shop shutting in the middle of the day. But, but it isn't a reflection on you. Well, it has been for me because I still remember sit, going in the supermarkets in France and you're at the line at the checkout and the person is so slow at the checkout because they're chatting to this customer yeah. and you're like, Oh my God! Just shut up and scan their gro- scan their groceries and just let's get on with it, you know, blah blah blah. And you're just sitting there, and I caught myself after a while. But for the first time, you're sitting there doing, it and then you get to the front of the line, and they're mm-hmm. chatting to you and making you feel amazing, and you're like, Yeah, yeah, I am. Yeah, you should be chatting to me. I'm an interesting person. <laughs> and it's, it's like, Oh, hang on. It, 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 they're very, they're very in the. You can't say they. It's too much of a generalization. But in my experience. The people I met were very focused on the then and now, and the yeah. you know, and whoever's in front of them right now. And there's potentially something to be learned from that as well, too. Actually, I grew up in that type of environment where the grocery store clerks would just chat with you. So, uh, <laughs> so that that was kind of more normal for me. I'm I'm okay with that. But just the, you know, when a waiter's rude, they're they're not rude. They just have a different culture, right? And yeah. they're just doing their job. And when, when you ask, like, oh, yeah, there's 16 of us. Do you mind splitting the bill? You know, at least four, four, and four. Excuse me, four, 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 four. And they look at you like it's just like you're speaking Chinese to them. <laughs> <laughs> like, no. maybe, don't come to, maybe don't come to Australia either because I think, 
what, one positive that I know about the US is is from my experience and from just general tales is is that hospitality and customer service is a profession and yeah. the tipping culture it breeds that as well too and therefore the better you are the better the tips are in theory therefore it becomes a, a profession yeah. now where that isn't the case in the rest of the world there's not that much incentive yeah so uh, yeah Very maybe true. don't go to the south of france <laughs> <laughs> all right michael i think we're going to wrap up there is there sure, man. is there anything else you want to ta- say about your business or say something about your <laughs> wife's book before we sign up <laughs> oh yeah okay cool it's called uh, am i french yet uh, you can check the website out uh, i don't know when you're going to post this but it should be live from the middle of august is mifrenchyet.com.au and um yeah it's a great tale and my business is uh, my media trading desk and we're a, a programmatic advertising service for privately owned media and marketing agencies which probably is a lot of lingo that means nothing but the people people who'll know about it will know about it but um yeah it's um been a pleasure um you know being on your show i mean i've listened to I mean, you had dan norris and taylor pearson on here guys that i've listened to a lot and i admire both of them and um you know i've known their stories but there was some other dudes on there like that another guy named michael stuck in my mind as well too you know with a million million dollars a month worth of adwords that he's managing i mean that's yeah. pretty cool yeah and that that other the other guy neaton Nitin, is it um Nitin, yeah Nitin, yeah, he was, you know, that money has no morality, which was just like this one sentence he slipped into <laughs> and that turned into a, you're a good interviewer, it turned into like half of his podcast, but it was just some random sentence he said. Yeah, that was cool. So thanks for doing what you're doing. It's uh, it's good to learn from people all over the world. No problem. It's good to hear the feedback. And any listeners out there that want to go on iTunes and give us a good review, that'd be awesome. Thanks for being a listener, Michael. I really do appreciate it. We're going to wrap up there. Thank you again so much for coming on the show. Listeners, thank you guys for joining us once again. We'll sign off there and see you all on the next episode. Goodbye, everybody. The Entrepreneur House is a business accelerator for established entrepreneurs. Imagine spending an extended period of time with other successful entrepreneurs working together and growing your business. Day to day, you interact with other driven and smart business people. Spending an extended period of time around them alters your business and your mentality around business. Goals are set, business grows, new partnerships develop, greater profit margins are achieved, the productivity skyrockets for the attendees, and you'll get to have an incredible adventure while doing it. This year, our main event will be held in Chiang Mai, Thailand. It will be full of workshops, masterminds, and co-working spaces. Be sure to check out the details at theentrepreneurhouse.com as soon as possible. For those of you that are interested and have some questions, don't hesitate to contact us, theentrepreneurhouse.com. We will respond as soon as we can. For now, saludos from somewhere in the world.